I used to work across the street from an organic farm. It was a smallish farm. It couldn't have been more than 10 acres. But they would allow people to just kind of take a self-guided tour through it. And one of the things that I discovered is that they loved weeds. Oh, I forgot the picture. I was supposed to tell you. One of the things they grow are cherimoyas. Now, cherimoyas are a little bit bigger than apples. And I was trying to, I was going to tell Chuck, they have... Um, oh my goodness, the name, Lo, uh, loquats. You guys remember loquats? Have anybody, the seeds that are in loquats, picture those seeds, but there's about 30 of them in that little thing. So you have to kind of get all the seeds out and then you're eating this and you get kind of all sticky and they're really good. But Donna would tell you that they are inedible because they have a weird texture and textures everything as far as Donna's concerned. So she never partook with me. And they were very expensive. But one of the things they said, as you all remember, Ronald Reagan used to live near Santa Barbara. They said that Reagan loved cherimoyas. There you go. So the other thing that I learned there is weeds. Weeds are, I for, there's no other word for it, popular at organic farms. Now, not all weeds are created equal, as I came to know. Some weeds fight certain insects. Some weeds prevent other bad weeds from coming in. Some weeds attract pollinators like bees. And some weeds fix the soil when they're turned in at the end of the season. Of course... The definition of weed is a plant that is growing where you don't want it, so therefore it's not really a weed, strictly speaking. Anyways, they're organic farmers. They're probably growing other kinds of grass too, so I don't know. <laughs> you guys never laugh at my jokes. I'm glad at least you got that one. Thank you. I appreciate it. But another thing that I have learned about weeds is that my heart is full of weeds. You know what these weeds are. These are the weeds that are your favorite flavor of sin. Do you gossip? Do you lust? Do you fret? Do you covet? These, there are also weeds in our heart that aren't in and of themselves sinful, like allowing lazy habits of your mind and heart to develop and you turn to whatever fantasy that you like to pursue or you start to dwell on the past when it really isn't healthy for you. These are weeds. And these weeds start taking up valuable room in your heart so that you're not able to love Jesus and love your near ones. What we're going to learn tonight is that you and I need to bear fruit, not weeds. Today we are going to see that there are plants in our heart that can bear fruit for the glory of God when they are in the right place. And one such plant is the law. Used rightly, God's law and even many uh, laws of man are helpful and good. But when we start to put any law, especially the law, in the wrong place of our heart, it becomes a weed and it will choke the life out of your heart. Now mind you, 
This is true not because the law is bad, but because the soil of our heart is bad. And you and I, we need a change of heart that no law can bring. Only the Spirit. Paul tells us tonight, the law is holy and righteous and good, and it will grow up and give life to us and our near ones, but only when it grows in the right spot. When we put the law in the right place. In one sentence, Romans chapter 7 teaches that the law is not meant either to justify or to sanctify, but to drive us to Jesus. And we will find next time that we fulfill the law, not by living by the law, but by living by the Spirit. The question that Romans 7 addresses is, what place does the law have in the life of the Christian? Are you... Christian meant to obey the law. And if you are, how do you go about doing that? Now, Pastor Benji and I did not talk about this. Now, he may have known I was going to Romans 7. I don't know. But he sent a devotional this last week that defines the three traditional uses of the law as theologians describe them. And the first one is the pedagogical use of the law. And in this way, the law reveals the perfect righteousness of God and our coming short of it. Simple enough to understand. Two, the second, the civil use of the law. Though the law cannot change anybody's heart, it can inhibit sin by threats of judgment. That's also straightforward. Ooh, I don't want to do that because I don't want to face judgment. And the third use of the law is the moral use of the law. The moral standards of the law provide guidance for believers as they seek to live in humble gratitude for the grace of God. Now, I'm not going to spend any more time on these three uses of the law. If you're interested, Google it. Talk to Pastor Benji or I, and we'd love to get more into the weeds, pun intended, on that. But I want to get back to our text. Paul begins Romans chapter 7 with a word to the legalists of the day. And in verses 1 through 6, he explains to us that Christians are dead to the law's requirements. Let's see how this happens by starting to read 1 through 4. Do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives? For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ. So that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. Now these first verses say without any reasonable misunderstanding that as Christians we are dead to the requirements of the law. I really don't see how you can argue based upon those four verses that we are required to obey the law. And furthermore, 
Paul says, we are dead to the requirements of the law for a very specific purpose. And that purpose is that so that you may belong to another. To him who has been raised from the dead in order that you may bear fruit for God. We are to bear fruit, not weeds. We will discover what that means in a moment, but I want to finish Paul's initial thought as we read verses 5 and 6. Paul continues, For while we were still living in the flesh, our sinful passions, aroused by the law, were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. Those are weeds. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we may serve in a new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. Now, I have a question. What on earth does Paul mean when he talks about the law having held us captive? Well, fortunately, he explains it much more clearly in Galatians chapter 3. He says, but the Scripture, he's talking about the Old Testament, he's talking about the law specifically here, but the law imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming of faith would be revealed. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. It's pushing us to Christ so that we're justified by faith. But now that the faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian, for in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. You see, the law pushes us to Christ because when we look at the law, we realize, I can't do it. I cannot fulfill the law's demands. And, and when we get a good look at the law and the Lord opens a good look into our hearts because we see what the law is there showing us, we become desperate. And God has always loved a desperate soul. Back to Romans 7. You, Christian, are free from the slavery to the law's demands. And this is good because the law cannot save. The law can only point us to Christ. Do not look to the law for the salvation because it was never to be found there anyways. And then Paul here, in verse 8, lays down his cards, even though he doesn't play them until Romans 8. He says, we are released from the law's demands so that we may serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. Serving in the law, the new way of the Spirit and not the old way of the written code is how we go about bearing fruit and not weeds. So, that begs the question. What is the fruit we are to bear? What, what does it mean, Paul? What is it that you're after from us when you tell us to bear fruit? Paul frequently, throughout all of his letters, is ambiguous 
especially when he gets to application. He just kind of throws things out there. Pastorally speaking, this is a good idea because ideally you want your congregation to listen to God. My job as a preacher is to make you independently dependent upon the Word of God. And so, bear fruit. And you, me, we are to go to Scripture and find out, okay, well, what do you want? Now, in this case, as with all of Scripture, it is wise to allow your heart and mind to sail in whatever direction the Spirit is blowing in your text. Because the Bible always aims to correct your thoughts, your beliefs, and or your actions, you can be sure that the Holy Spirit is always providing some direction. In this text, because we realize here that Paul's main concern is the Christian's use of the law, we need to ask ourselves, how do we use the law? Back to the devotional we had earlier this week in the three uses of the law. I'm going to suggest that the primary aim that Paul had in this passage was the pedagogical use of the law. The law reveals the perfect righteousness of God and our own coming short of it. Now, how you go about doing that is to allow the Holy Spirit to show you where it is you are struggling with sin. Lord, I need to know what sin you want me to repent of. What sin in my life right now needs my repenting? And then as you go through your day, as you go through the next week, the Lord will have heard that prayer. And sometimes when you're washing your copious bald head up here, you know, or something like that. Or when you're driving down the road and your brain is in neutral, your mind is in neutral, the Lord will reveal it to you. And take that as a sign that this is what God wants you to deal with. And deal with it. Go to the Lord and hear Him. That, that I think, is a, an application of this. But there are those who reject the law altogether. Paul aims his arrows in the direction of those, his next arrows in the direction of those who would be licentious, those who just reject the law altogether and say, we don't need that. And to them, Paul says, the law remains good and has a purpose that will not be abolished. We see this in verses 7 through 12. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, You shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, 
seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. There is nothing wrong with the law. There is nothing wrong with the law. The problem lies right here in my heart where the weeds of my own heart grow up and defile many who are near me. I want to pause for a moment. And I want to look in this passage. I want to point out the sin that Paul in particular emphasized. Covetousness. You know, I used to think as I came to this passage, oh, you know, Covetousness just must have been Paul's flavor of sin. And, you know, some people covet or are gamblers and some people are drinkers and some people are, you know, whatever their flavor of sin is. Paul just, his flavor of sin was covetousness. And I thought, well, that makes sense because he would go and make tents and that was his way of kind of combating by faith this sin of covetousness. And that may be true. I dare say most of us covet one thing or another. But then I started realizing, wait a minute. If you look at the other nine commandments, all of them can be seen by others. They're, they're more external. The, even the first two, no other gods, no idols. But you can't see covetousness. It's a lot easier to hide. It's necessarily an invisible sin. And we also know about covetousness is at the root of all the other sins that are in the Big Ten. Jesus clarified for us, if it wasn't clear earlier, that the law is deep. And what I mean by deep is Someone can see it if you're stealing. Someone can see it if you're committing adultery. Someone can see it if you're lying. But you just might be able to put on a pretty little face and hide your coveting so no one ever sees it. And so Paul here, I think, intentionally chose covetousness because he wanted to remind us the law goes deep. It goes underneath our skin. It goes below our defenses. I think it also is significant that Paul specifically identified covetousness in Colossians chapter 3 as idolatry. He says, put to death therefore what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Covetousness is most definitely a weed that will suck the life out of every good work you were created to do. No, I suspect that Paul did not arbitrarily pick covetousness. I think he was intentional because he knows that it gets to the root of all sins. And Chuck, I'm sorry, I put the verse in a wrong place. Jesus gives us a promise about covetousness. 
You don't have to go back to it if you don't want. But Luke 12, 15, Jesus said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. You don't need to covet, Jesus says, because your life is not made up of stuff, circumstances, or relationships. Trust that the law correctly points out your sins. It puts its finger in your heart where your covetousness is and roots it out. And then, Jesus, oh, what grace. What amazing, extraordinary grace. He gives us then a promise. And what is the promise? The promise that Jesus gives here is that your life is not in stuff and circumstances and relationships. You can let it go. Because that is not what gives you your life. There is a life that is given by Jesus that no billionaire can buy. And that life is entrusting that I don't need to covet because if the Lord doesn't want me to have something, I'm not missing it. That is a promise on which you can depend. Now, I want to get into, I want to pause again because the biggest controversy in Romans chapter 7, ironically, is something that I don't think was foremost on Paul's mind. I, in fact, I don't even think it was secondary in Paul's mind when he came to Romans 7. But the question that everybody wants to argue about, the question that everybody wants to answer when they come to Romans 7, is who is this I that Paul is talking about here in Romans 7? Now, I am not going to get deep into the weeds. Uh, years ago, I remember I listened to John MacArthur on this, and he had an excellent explanation of why we are correct in our interpretation of Romans 7. Uh, in terms of the eye. Uh, you, you didn't get that? Come on. He, he was, yeah, okay, got it. I'll, I'll deign to say John MacArthur was correct on this, on that. Um, but what I will say is that what appears to the best evangelical scholars, the ones that I looked at, in verses 7 to 12, in these particular verses right here, Paul views himself as a part of the corporate whole of humanity that began with Adam, and at the same time, he identifies himself with Israel. Again, I'm not going to get into all the details, but if you go through those verses, you will see how this comes up. So, if you want to fall on one side of the issue or the other, in these verses, 7 through 12, Paul's I is most likely intended to draw every single human being, including the Jews, into this problem of sin and temptation exactly in the same analogous way as he did in chapters 1, 2, and 3 when he's describing the breadth of human guilt with regards to sin. So then the question is, are you a child of Adam? And the answer is, are you 
Christian, a child of Abraham? And the answer is, therefore, you too, like all the rest of us, struggle with temptation to sin. Anybody want to deny that? Oh, good. I didn't want to talk about lying next week. Then we come back. We're back into Romans 7. And we come to verse 13. Now verse 13 forms a bridge. It's a bridge between the two teachings of the chapter. He wants to wrap up his discussion of the two ways that the law is used wrongly. And he wants to show us why the law then is powerless to save us. Why the law is powerless to cause us to live in the newness of life that Paul was talking about in Romans chapter 6, but hasn't yet described until we get to Romans chapter 8. Let's look at this bridge in verse 13. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. The point of crossing this bridge is to give us something solid under our feet. A stony path, so to speak, to lead us through these weeds. And this is a stony path. The law is good. The law is good. I, however, am still sinful. And the law points this out. I need, therefore, to experience the master gardener's pruning word so that I can abide in him. The problem is not with the law. The problem is with me. The law does exactly what the law is meant to do. To make the reality of my sin and guilt crystal clear to me so that I will run to Jesus. Because He's the only one to run to. Now, in the next major section of Romans 7, Paul has a word for Christians. And I'm laying my cards down here. He has a word for Christians who are trying to keep the law. That word is flesh will never meet the law's requirements. Stop trying. What do we get? Verses 14 through 17. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do, not, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. Oh my goodness, what is going on here? Well, it's actually not that complicated. I believe that what's going on is Paul is speaking about the experience of Bible-believing, Yahweh-honoring Jews and Gentile God-fearers who have not yet met God the Spirit. Or he's talking to people at this time who do not yet have a full understanding of the good news of God concerning His Son, which is why he's writing Romans makes perfect sense. The person that he's speaking to in these verses does not understand what it means to bear fruit in serving the new way of the Spirit. However, those of you who are clever in here have already pointed out a problem with the interpretation I just gave you. 
<laughs> I got one nodding head. All right, good. One person say, yeah, I got a problem there. Okay, well, at least one problem with that interpretation I just gave you is that it would have nothing to do with me. Right? I mean, wait a minute. I just cut out part of Scripture. I don't, oh, we don't need that. Okay, I believe it does have something to do with me. So let me read the next couple of verses. Verses 18 through 20. Paul continues. For I know nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have a desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but the sin who dwells in me. Anybody ever run into this problem? Anybody willing to admit? Have you ever found yourself sinning in the same way over and over again? You know that same sin that you swore yesterday you'd never fall to again? Oh, I got this. I'm smart enough. I, I finally get it. Wham! Fallen again. Oh! Am I really the only one? Have you ever run into the problem that these Bible-believing, Yahweh-honoring Jews and Gentile God-fearers who have never met the God, the Spirit, or who have never come to a full understanding of the good news concerning God's Son, have you ever struggled like they are? Of course you have. Hmm. If you have, perhaps Paul is talking to you as well. We already described in, in Romans chapter 6 that we have flesh. You remember that the flesh is that part of us that Christ commands to crucify because that part of us still tends towards sin. And very often, all too often, we live in autopilot. And this autopilot naturally tends towards attitudes and actions that our flesh desires and that we seemingly have absolutely no control over. No. I'm going to go farther than that because Paul evidently goes farther than that. This autopilot just takes over and we naturally respond to what's going on around us in anger. Or we naturally respond in coveting. We respond with greed and lust and desires for money, pleasure, and power. We naturally do these things when we allow our autopilot that Paul is calling here flesh tend us towards sinful attitudes and actions. But we are not natural. We believe in a supernatural God. We believe in a God that honors us when we honor Him. We believe in a God who gives us promises that apply to every situation you can be in. That's why we need to trust the promises of God for us in Christ. And when we're doing that, we are bearing fruit, not weeds. Very um, actual 
situation in my life right now is in helping my little girl. My little girl has anxiety issues, especially when it comes to being alone. And so one of the things that we do is we give her gospel songs to sing. In fact, VBS songs that she's been singing all week. Woo, 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 woo. Praise Jesus. But the other thing that I do, and I started this last week with Matthew 28, 20. Matthew 28, 20. Jesus says, I am always with you. Matthew 28, 20. And so she's got that. If you ask her and she doesn't get scared of stranger danger, <laughs> she'll probably say it. The one that I did two nights ago uh, when she was really struggling with this anxiety was Joshua 1.9. Do not be afraid, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Joshua 1.9. And so we do that over and over again. And we do it a bunch of times. Why? Because she needs to know that the answer to her struggles is trusting the promises of God in Jesus. And even though I'm not using that sentence, I am using this idea because my friends, you cannot pluck these weeds too early. And she needs to have the rich mulch of the promises of God go into the soil of her heart so that it will bear fruit and not weeds. How is this going to turn out? Well, I suspect she, like her mom and dad and every other mother's child, is going to have her flavors of sin as well. And maybe this is one of them that she's going to struggle with all her life. I don't know, but this is what I know. Trust the promises of God for you in Christ and you will bear fruit, not weeds. So, Paul, in his passage, begins to wrap up his argument. And at the same time, he's wrapping up this idea of how the Christian should respond to the law, he also begins to point forward to what we will camp on in Romans 8. He wants us to be sure that our view of the law is correct. The law causes us to see our sins rightly so that we can seek the cure of the sinful hearts in our chest. Where is that? In God the Son. How does Paul begin this argument. Verse 21, he says, So I find it to be the law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand, right next to my heart. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am! Who will deliver me from this body of death? Certainly not me. I don't have the resources to do it. You don't have the resources to do it. Who does? Praise Jesus. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh, the law of sin. Now, if you ever wondered if 
who Paul was talking to here. Is he talking about an unbeliever? Is he talking about an immature Christian? Is he talking about a mature Christian? This, in my mind, settles the question beyond all doubt. He is talking about himself and every other mature, Bible-believing, Christ-honoring Christian because he says, I delight in the law of God in my inner being. Only someone who's redeemed can say that. Now, I, I don't mean to be overly simplistic here, but it seems to me that those who deny that Paul is talking to believers in this case do so because they have a mistaken view of how Christians grow in Christ-likeness, humanly speaking. But more important than that, because as I told you, the identity of the I in Romans 7 is at best Paul's secondary concern. His primary concern is to give us a place to stand on so that we understand the law and what it was meant to do. What is the Christian's correct response to the law? Not whether we are going to fight a lifelong battle against sin and temptation. (laughs) Duh. Paul finally opens a way for the solution in Romans 8. When he says, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. We end this portion of Romans with a crystal clear view of the fact that we owe everything to Jesus and nothing, nothing, we owe nothing to my ability to turn away from my sinful flesh. Our flesh can only ceaselessly crave whatever flavor of sin that haunts us, which is exactly why Jesus commands us to crucify it. Wow. Given that, I might be tempted to despair. Given that, I... I'm seriously tempted to just give up, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we shall die. What? Man, find me a pit to crawl into. Except, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Why is there no condemnation? For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free from the law of sin and death. For God has done (laughs) what the law, weakened by my flesh, could not do by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh for sin, and for sin He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Christian, you are safe. Christian, you are loved. So bear fruit, not weeds. Now, most of you who know me know that I love gardening. In my perfect world, I would be a gentleman farmer with bees and chickens and worms. I'd have some goats and pigs and cows. Alas, this is not a perfect world. Many weeds grow in my heart, in my yard, and many weeds grow in my heart. What does Romans 7 have to do with you and me? 
plenty. At the very minimum, if, if Romans 7 means absolutely nothing else, it means that you and I must have compassion on that sinner sitting next to you. We're all in the same boat. Your flavor of sin may be different than mine. Okay. We're still sinners. We still follow the autopilot of our flesh. And because, precisely because, I am not okay and you are not okay, we can be okay with each other. There is no room for condemning. There is no room for belittling. There is no room for hateful thoughts. Romans 7, if it is nothing else, is a reminder that the law points us to Jesus. We must do this in order to be justified. We must do this in order to be sanctified. And it points us to Jesus also because I need to walk this earth with you. Until Jesus comes back, I need to be side by side with you. We need to fight this battle against the world, the flesh, and Satan together. And I learn here that my flesh is weak, your flesh is weak, so we need to look to Jesus. And if we're looking to Jesus together, we'll get past these things that are, belittle, that are attacking us then we will go on and bear fruit that is stronger than our weeds that are in our heart. And we will do it for God's glory, for our joy, and for the growth of His kingdom. Lord, indeed, bless us. Help us to be for Your kingdom and to know Your power to take those weeds out of our life. And as we come to those passages in Romans 8 over the following weeks, Help us to bask in the light of the glory of God in the face of Christ Jesus and rejoice that you are great and you are gracious. Bless us and make us a blessing. In Jesus' name, amen.